Well, let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you were here last week, then you know we studied verse 12. And that was Paul's incredible one-sentence summary of how he had lived his life toward the Corinthians. What is your and my one-sentence summary of how we have behaved and lived for the past year or two? What a thought. We remember that Paul was falsely accused by people in the Corinthian church, particularly those who were claiming to be authorities in the church. And he was accused of being incompetent, deceitful, greedy, lying, especially in regards to coming back and visiting the church of Corinth and continuing his ministry there. And this was causing serious division and weakness in the church. So verse 12 was Paul's summary of his defense, which reads, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. What an incredible testimony. Oh, that we would be able to echo those words in our lives. Today's study is partially an, partially an addendum to last week. We're going to look at the last half of chapter 1 and how Paul demonstrated his simplicity, his holiness, his godly sincerity toward these believers. And then in the first part of chapter 2, we're going to see Paul challenging the church to now demonstrate their holiness and godly sincerity toward each other. The flow of this text and the purpose behind each of these sections is astonishing. It is brilliant writing, but we would expect nothing less of the Holy Spirit, would we? Let's pray and then we'll study our way through. Heavenly Father, do what only you can do. We ask that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding Soften the hardness of our hearts and give us the grace to yield to God. We know that when we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. When we submit to you, the enemy runs. So this morning we ask for a, a special measure of spiritual strength, a measure of your power, how we need it going into this week. We do not want to operate on fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. So we pray toward that end now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's dive right into verse 13. Paul says, For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. That's a, very quickly, that's Paul saying, Don't read between the lines, don't believe everything you hear. You know what I wrote. You read it, you understood it for yourself. The meaning hasn't changed and it won't change. Verse 14, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. We deduce from Paul's words here that these young believers didn't fully understand the importance of their togetherness in the ministry of the gospel. We saw this last week, and especially in our recent study in 1 Thessalonians, where we looked at Paul's rapture-present view of others. End of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we saw that Paul's joy, his glory, his hope of exaltation, etc., was seeing these believers in the presence of Jesus when he returned. And Paul's saying again here in verse 14, I'm proud of you being in Christ. And you are proud of me for being in Christ. That is our boast to the glory of God. He's reminding them, we are in this together. Verse 15, on the foundation of the past three verses especially, Paul now explains why he didn't come back to Corinth. Verse 15, in this confidence, referring back to verse 12 in the proud confidence of his simple, holy, godly, sincere living, he says, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, 
to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. We see that he planned to see them twice on the way in and on the way out. And he was hoping they would support him with his journey and the collection that he was taking for the needy believers where? Jerusalem. He was taking a collection for them. Again, the togetherness of the church. Verse 17 continues, Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I a purpose according to the flesh? So that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. Paul's saying, I was not speaking out of both sides of my mouth. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Now, if you're an attorney like Rick, you appreciate these kind of passages. This is an astounding defense that Paul is laying out. Notice he states the accusation. This is the issue in verse 17. Am I vacillating, going back and forth in what I say? Am I saying yes and no at the same time? In verse 18, he states the standard by which he will judge the integrity of his speech and conduct. And what is that standard? The faithfulness of God. The consistency, the trustworthiness of God, the singularity, the holy simplicity of God, all of it was wrapped up in the standard that Paul would use to judge his own word and behavior. Very quickly, we would do well to follow Paul's example here. When we're attacked, accused, rebuked, etc., let us immediately remember that there is only one standard that matters, the standard of God Himself. It is His holiness, His example, God's behavior, God's Word that will tell us if we are right or wrong. It doesn't matter if someone else has wronged us first. It doesn't matter what others have done or if they are partially to blame. It doesn't matter if we think we're innocent. This goes back to last week's study and the point on godly sincerity. Our sincerity must be God-like. So much confusion and stress and frustration can be avoided by not making ourselves and our morality or our comparisons the judge in difficult situations, the judge in conflict, the judge in accusation. All that matters is God's standard. And we see here that Paul immediately rushes to the standard when he says, as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. Husbands, Next time our wife is frustrated and offended by us, can we say, as Christ treated the church, so I have treated you. Whoa, right? <laughs> Failure number one right here. But that is the standard. That is the goal. As God is, so must I be. Be ye holy, even as I am holy. Paul goes further at verse 19 to point out that even the Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself, was faithful, consistent, and true. He said, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. As God is faithful and true, so is the Son. Why is that important? Because that's who Paul preaches. Paul goes even further to state that all the promises of God are faithful and trustworthy. 
the Word of God, the Gospel message, the grandest promise of all time is also faithful and true. Why is that important? Because that's what Paul preaches. Why is that relevant? Because Paul's opponents in Corinth were not only attacking him, they were attacking the gospel. They were weaving Judaism into it. The law, more than the law. They were also rejecting the Gentiles. They were denying a number of New Testament doctrines as we'll see addressed throughout this epistle. Here's the point Paul was making in these verses. Because God is faithful, the Son is faithful. And because the Son is faithful and true, the message is faithful and true. And because the Father, the Son, and the message are true, are you ready for this? So the messenger is true because he only preached the gospel and he lived what he preached. There's an incredible theological truth at play and at stake here. We learn that if there is any error in the Father, any fault, any sin, any inconsistency or unfaithfulness, then not only can God the Father not be trusted, the Son can't either. And neither can the message, that is, the divine promises that everyone is banking on, and neither can the messenger. But guess what? The faithful messenger can be trusted. Why? Because the message is true. And the Son is true and the Father is true because the Father and the Son are one. Not only do we find an incredible theological truth at work here, we also find excellent practical truths. You and I had better be living what we preach. By the grace of God, we are not perfect, but we are always being perfected, maturing, striving for more and more holiness and godly sincerity. We cannot underestimate the vital importance of the integrity and honesty of our behavior and testimony, our word. People are watching. And they are not only judging us, they are judging the message. And they're not only judging the message, they're judging our Savior and the Father of our Savior as Paul introduced God at the beginning of chapter 1. This simplicity and single-mindedness of holiness is why Paul could then say in the verse, therefore, therefore, because all that I've just stated is true, therefore, also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Because of the faithfulness of the Father, the Son, and the message, I too have been faithful. I too can be yes, and it's all to the glory of God. As these verses point out, it is through Him, and in Him, and of Him, and to Him. That's why Paul says, Amen, to the glory of God. By the grace of God, He is being glorified through us. That's what we want to be able to boast about like Paul. There should be a pride in our hearts and lives. And it is not us, but God and His grace and His glory at work in and through us. Verse 21, very quickly, as this is all just an addendum to last week. The real meat for today is in chapter 2. But now verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. We don't have time to go deep here, but we have to at least notice these four specific acts of God that Paul is highlighting. Acts of God that not only confirm the ministry of the gospel, but Paul's ministry of the gospel. And likewise should confirm our ministry of the gospel. All of this confirmation happens only by the grace of God 
through our life and our Christian testimony in the world and especially in the church, as we saw last week. Paul is successful in ministry because of four points from verse 21. God establishes, God anoints, God seals, and God pledges. And he pledges himself nonetheless. What a thought. The Holy Spirit. We see here that from the beginning of the work of the gospel to the end of the work of the gospel, God is involved. God is the one who is commissioning and sending and equipping. God is guaranteeing. God is finishing what he has begun. That's why Paul in Philippians 1.6 could say, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The faithfulness of God is a marvelous and hope-giving theological truth. It is our best defense. But have you noticed, Paul still hasn't told them why he didn't go back to Corinth yet. He still hasn't answered the question. That's because in wise attorney style, he has laid the basis for his answer before giving the answer. If you study persuasive speech, you understand this principle. Verse 23, but I call God as, my wit as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Quick review of the background on this situation. There was sin in the church in Corinth. There was rebellion against some of Paul's prior teachings and even against Paul himself. He had already visited them prior, and it was a disaster. They rejected him, and he ended up just walking away. He had to leave. It got so bad. He was very discouraged from it. He then wrote them what is known as the harsh letter, a very strong and hard letter. He talks about that throughout 2 Corinthians. We don't have record of that letter. We just know he states that he sent it. And he knew that had he come back, it most certainly would not have gone well for them. There are a few of us dads in this room who know exactly what Paul is talking about. Kids, when I come home, you're going to wish I never came back. That's what Paul's saying here. Our only problem is we can't claim holiness and godly sincerity when we say that kind of thing. But Paul did. By the grace of God, he waited to return. He gave them time. Think about this. He gave them time to repent and to choose on their own to do what is right. He allowed time for the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit could do. So many lessons for us to observe, even at a glance in this text. We know that Titus had just brought back word that the church, by and large, had indeed repented. But those few who were still against Paul took advantage of the situation to accuse him of lying about coming back to Corinth. And Paul's answer, he didn't come back to spare them. He didn't come back yet for their sake. He cared too much. And he had a long-term vision for their long-term spiritual growth. Let's bring this home. So often in life, like the church in Corinth, we find ourselves embittered against those who are trying desperately to help us. That's not always the case, but sometimes it is. We suspect and doubt and assume negatively of those who are on our side. Misunderstandings run rampant. Pride gets his ugly little fingers involved. Communication gets cut off, etc., etc. Paul was no stranger to real-life struggles in the city, in the church. And as mentioned before, his relationship with these young believers was at times very strained and frustrated. After all he had done for them, they caused him much trouble, much stress, much angst. He says in the next chapter, I cried when I wrote that harsh letter to you. Paul waited because he cared so much. And it was a godly care. Godly care is very patient. God give us more of that. Look at what Paul does next. 
he gives a definition of his pastoral relationship with these young believers. Verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. We are taught and reminded here that pastors weren't called, aren't called, and never will be called to lord over the church, over the spiritual growth of others. There are no masters and commanders in the church. Servant leaders, yes. God does, in His sovereignty, for reasons only He knows fully, He does give the elders of the church authority and leadership and responsibility. But as we were reminded here, we work together for the sake of the joy of the church. And Paul, Paul ends this portion of his letter with this monumental statement. He says, for in your faith, you are standing firm. Not my faith, not the church's faith, not your parents' faith. You can only stand firm in the faith that is yours. Children in here, young people, do you believe in God's Word? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, that He's the Son of God who died for your sins and came back to life? Do you believe that He is the one true God that offers salvation and is the only one who can offer salvation and forgiveness and eternal life to us? Only you can decide whether or not you will believe God's Word and live by it. Friend, if you've been struggling in your Christian walk for a long time, and you hardly even know what, it, what it's like to stand firm, is it possible that you haven't taken the Christian faith personally enough, sincerely enough, as we're learning, biblically enough? My heart breaks in that I see so many people wondering why Christianity isn't working for them. I cannot help but wonder, perhaps it's because it's not actually theirs. Sure, they know some Bible truths. Sure, they go to church. But their sincerity is far from godly. They don't really understand the scriptures and the whole of the gospel and what God through Christ has done for them. They would be the first to admit it never radically changed me. They've never really pondered what it means to repent and believe as Christ himself called for when he came to earth. They've never really pondered what it means to deny self and to pick up our own cross and lose our life for Christ's sake so that we can be one of his followers. See Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. Study those verses in the light of all Christ teaches regarding salvation and forgiveness and being one of his own disciples. The question must be asked, are you and I standing firm? Is the faith ours? Perhaps we have indeed experienced the assurance of our faith. And we have experienced that victory-giving, comfort-giving, hope-giving grace of God. But right now, we're tripping and stumbling all over the road bumps of life. What we need is revival, recommitment, a fresh resolve toward godly sincerity and holiness, a resolve to follow Christ, not just in the areas that it's easy, but in all of the areas of life. That spiritual experience that you and I had 10 or 15 or 20 years ago may have been enough to genuinely get us born again. But we still need the interaction of the Holy Spirit and the interaction of the Word and the regular fellowship of the believers to keep standing firm. Paul understands this struggle both for believers and non-believers. And he hammers the nail on the head when he says, it's your faith that is required for you to stand firm. 
My sermons can't make you strong. Mark's almost can, but, not, but even his aren't powerful enough. The church's ministries can't make you strong. Even reading your Bible alone cannot make you strong. We have to grasp the truth. Grab the truth. Hold tightly. Internalize. Personalize. Obey it. Live it out by grace through faith. And so we see Paul saying, I have done. That's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. I mean, immediately we see three possibilities here. It's possible to not hold fast. It's possible for it not to be ours. And it's possible to waver in life. But what's the next phrase? For he is faithful that promised. That's a magnificent second half of that verse. Only your faith by the grace of God, can anchor the feet of your life into the solid ground of God's faithful salvation and daily grace. The same is ever so true for me. What powerful truth we find in this last phrase of chapter 1. You may have noticed that Paul has subtly shifted the attention now from himself to the church. In true pastoral fatherly, deep care. He begins to share how these truths that have changed him can now and should now change them. We see that the Holy Spirit is teaching us through Paul not only truths about God, but also truths about the church and church life, body life, as we're learning in Rick's Sunday School class. Here at the start of chapter 2, we find one of the most difficult to obey, but most rewarding Christ-like behaviors, and that is the behavior of forgiveness and love. This is what holiness and godly sincerity look like in the church. Follow along as I read the first 11 verses in chapter 2. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that you, when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. So that, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. To play off last week's study, let's quickly observe seven signs I love my church family. Did you notice I used the positive tense this week? Seven signs I hate my church family just seemed like a little much. Verse 2, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Sign number one, that I love my church family. 
I recognize that these people are my friends. That's easy to say when everything's going great, but what about when conflict hits? And it will hit. Believe it or not, the church consists of 100% sinners. We say things we regret. We do things we wish we could take back. Pride does strike at one time or another in all of us. Selfishness strikes. And it is then that we find out if we really love our church family, the people of God, if we truly view these people as our friends. That's a simple way of putting it, but I really believe the focus here that Paul is trying to communicate is joyful and faithful and positive relationships. A river of happiness and mutual care and strength that flows in both directions. Paul's relationship lesson here is simple. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. You can't have a friendship without a friend. Sad friends can't make you happy, so don't make them sad. Paul is stating the obvious, but sometimes the obvious isn't so obvious. Verse 3 continues, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. Sign number two, that I love my church family. I envision the successful grace of God in others. This flies in the face of thoughts like, that person will never change. That person will never learn. I doubt they'll respond, but fine, I'll do what's right toward them. I suppose you could say those things apart from grace. Apart from grace, those would be pretty reliable sentiments because we are 100% sinners. But what about the reality of the grace of God in the church of God? That changes things. That changes potential. That should change vision. It should inspire hope in one another. Paul chooses to be confident in his brothers and sisters in Christ and specifically in the grace of God in them. Too many people in the church doubt the power of God as though the grace of God was apparently only good enough for me. Paul was confident in the spiritual growth of others, the successful grace of God, particularly when they were struggling. What an awesome character trait to have. Verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. Sign number three that you and I love our church family. I sacrificially pour my heart and soul into relationships. Not to emphasize the emotions too much, but have you ever cried for your church family? Because you cared so deeply. And maybe, maybe we're just not that type. That's okay. But has our heart at least ever ached for them? And specifically for their suffering during times of sin and weakness and struggling in life, spiritual struggle. We cannot take these verses out of context. Paul's not talking about general relationships, life in general. He is talking about conflict, occasions of sin and genuine offense in the church. We learn here that one of the sure signs of a weak church is a disconnect in the emotions for one another. People walk away from a church that they've been in for years and could care less. There are so many examples throughout Scripture of men and women who emotionally spent themselves for the benefit and spiritual growth of others. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, to King David, to Joseph. Second Chronicles chapter 34 has a captivating account of King Josiah, the very young king, likely a teen, who reigned when one of the priests found the book of the law, which apparently had been disregarded and boxed away for generations. Second Chronicles 34, verse 26 and 27 says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard. Because we just had a portion of the scriptures read. Thus says God, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, 
And because you humbled yourself before me, I mean, it's got to be important when God says it twice in the same sentence. Because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes, and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Josiah wept because of the sins and the impending judgment of God upon his people, Josiah's people. He was spiritually, emotionally connected to them. New Testament, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. The smallest verse in the Bible is not necessarily the smallest. Verses 30, 32 to 35 say, Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. If the Messiah was so emotionally connected to the well-being of people, the spiritual well-being of people, shouldn't we also? If it was necessary for him to minister effectively, how much more so for us that we have a care for one another that drives deep into our souls. If you and I love our church family, we will pour our heart and soul into relationships. Back in 2 Corinthians, verse 4 continues. Paul says, I wrote to you, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Positive sign number four. My goal in hard conversations is to communicate how deeply I love the other person, especially my own church family. Paul uses the word especially here. My goal in hard conversations is to communicate how deeply I love the other person. We have to believe that this biblical truth put into practice would dramatically alter the course of many hard conversations. Am I the only one here who has to remind myself that proving I'm right is not the proper and godly goal for a hard conversation? Neither is proving the other person wrong. Here's another one we all have to wrestle with, especially men. The end goal is not to correct the situation. Paul didn't say, I wrote to you to set things straight once and for all. I'm tired of all this bickering and fighting. Can't you guys just get along? No, he said, I wrote that difficult letter so you might know the love which I have especially for you. He spoke the truth in love because he loved. We cannot speak the truth in love if love does not exist. That kind of guiding purpose will transform the tone of our voice, the choice of our words, even the expression on our face, and so much more. It paves the way for Proverbs 15, 1 and 2. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. A true friend understands the way life works. They understand these principles of conversation, these principles of relationship. That's why Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but, the dece but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The goal in hard conversations must be to communicate love. And to communicate it, it must be there in the first place. Verse 5, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. 
Sign number five, we love our church. I don't take offenses personally. I humbly take them corporately because it's not all about me. We are in this together, right? That offense didn't just hurt that individual. It hurts the whole church family. That argument doesn't just affect me and that person. It affects the unity of the church because we're in this together. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. May I interject? What a tragedy when it's the church that is causing the suffering, when it's the church that is causing the sadness. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. May I interject? How glorious and how wonderful when it is the church that is honoring and blessing and serving and lifting up each other. I encourage you at home to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the body of Christ chapter, and notice the wealth of affirmation there in that chapter for these points that Paul is making in our study today. Verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Sign number six, that we love our church family. I understand that a vengeful heart wants to see others crushed by their sorrow. But godly sincerity chooses to forgive and comfort the repentant person. I know that's a long point. Maybe it's because it's such a big one. A vengeful heart wants to see others crushed by their sorrow. But not godly sincerity, not holiness, not simplicity. That person chooses instead to forgive and comfort the repentant person. What does verse 2 say? If they're crushed, who's going to help me when I fall down? If they're crushed, who's going to cheer me up when I'm sad? Who's going to minister to me when I need it? If they're crushed, we're all crushed. It's important to know that it is almost certain that Paul is speaking here in reference to someone who has sinned greatly and repented. The verse clearly states that corporate discipline was already administered. Discipline by the majority, said. How do we know that the individual properly responded? Because the time for forgiveness and comfort had come. You don't comfort rebellious, angry, spiteful, hurtful people. You love them and you rebuke them in godly sincerity. And if the gravest of situations calls for it, the church is commanded to disassociate from them. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We studied that on May 20th of last year. If you'd like to know more about Christian disassociation, you can watch that study on our live stream. A topic that is very misunderstood and misapplied consequently. As a quick side note, if a person living in gross sin and who is offending deeply in the church, if a person is doing that, we are to follow the principles of what chapter in Matthew? 18. Matthew 18. Every believer needs to understand Matthew 18. Conflict resolution. Matthew 18 says, number one, go to them privately, one-on-one. -on -one. You, go to your brother, the offender and the offended. If that doesn't work, number two, take a brother or sister in Christ. If that doesn't work, take it to the elders of the church. Notice, that's step three. It's not step one. Praise God, the verse doesn't say, call your pastor first, any time of day or night. You know that I and all of the elders of this church are available 24-7 after you've taken steps number one and two. Matthew 18 goes on to stay, say, if step number three doesn't work, they are to be treated like what? A Gentile and a tax collector. What is that? A sinning unbeliever. Preach the gospel to them. Love them with the care of God, the care of Jesus Christ. Pray for them. Point them to salvation. Back to our text today. The offending individual has repented. Paul now reminds us there is a limit to punishment, to discipline. The discipline and corresponding shame of sin brought before the whole church is often sufficient. 
Here's what I hear coming from Paul between verses 6 and 7. Stop it. Enough. It's time to forgive and to forget. It's time to comfort and lift up. It's time to move on and show confidence. If that person, person loses the battle because they were so overcome, if they lose the battle because everyone refused to come alongside them, that's what comfort means, to come alongside, to get into it with them, to carry them on. If that person loses the battle, what has the church won? Nothing. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That sounds like a pretty important verse. I know it forces us to wrestle with doctrine, but we better wrestle with it and understand the grace of God that is evident in a person when they forgive. If the grace of God, the salvation of God, the saving power of God does not give us the grace, the strength to forgive, then what does the Scripture say? The grace of God is not there. We must be a forgiving people. Verses 8 to 11 now, our last point. Here's where we get the title of today's study. Paul says, verse 8, Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. The ESV says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Sign number seven, I love my church family. I choose not only to love, but to reaffirm my love for others. It's the word reaffirm that so grips our attention. Often in life, we assume the other party knows. The classic scenario, of course, is the husband and wife. And husband says, I told her I loved her when I married her. If anything changes, I'll let her know. No, love has to be reaffirmed. This is so pertinent and highly relevant to the church. So many churches are sadly plagued with that same poor husband's mindset. I'm here. I'm a member of the church, right? They ought to know. The church is plagued oftentimes with undercurrents of misunderstanding and often genuine misunderstanding, hurt feelings, disappointments, frustrations, etc. It's important that we recognize, particularly when we're offended, it is not enough to just let it go. It's not enough to just forgive and say, fine, I won't hold a grudge. Paul says, go further, reaffirm your love. Say it again and again. Clarify it. Restate it. Reestablish it. Reassure it. All too often when it comes to interpersonal conflict in the church and elsewhere, we find that one party just assumed the other party was okay. They assumed the relationship was okay. I thought they knew I let it go. But the undercurrent of a strained relationship lingers and it often lingers for years, if not indefinitely. These hidden walls can be and should be and must be broken down for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the joy of the church, for the sake of the joy of our friendship, for the sake of the glory of God. My prayer is that we will be a church family where the words of sincere, godly, brotherly love are spoken often. Words of forgiveness, words of comfort, words of affirmation and appreciation, words of confidence, then we will know that we love our church family. Then we will know we love God. When the love 
is strong in the body of Christ, that love will extend beyond the body of Christ. If the men would please come and prepare to serve communion now. I can hardly think of better way to reaffirm our love for one another than to focus on the love of God through Christ Jesus, His Son on the cross. He is the wellspring of our love. Our reaffirmation of love for one another begins and continues, you understand this, with a reaffirmation of our love for God. If you're a follower of Christ, I invite you to partake of these communion elements. This is the believer's way of remembering that God loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin, to take our place in death. Ponder that. What does the proverb say? There is no greater love than that man would lay down his life for his friend. Jesus did that so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the good news of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 to 26 says, The Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We love one another because we love Christ. And we love Christ because he loved us so much. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift, the free gift, the willing gift, the sacrificial gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. We love because you first loved us. Oh, Lord, help these truths to sink so deeply, so emotionally, so truly and sincerely in a godlike way into our souls that even Satan and all the power of hell and darkness cannot stop the love of God from throw it flowing through us, especially in the church. We remember you now in Jesus' name. Amen.